We're going to be in Daniel chapter 3 today. Daniel chapter 3. So let's pray for uh, Christy, Debbie, Nikki, and Mark. No one else? Father, we do lift these up to you today. Uh, we don't know all of their situations, but you certainly do. You know their hearts. You know their soul. We know, Father, that you love them. And we know that you want the best for them and that you have a plan for them. And our Father, our hope is that you would touch and heal each one who needs healing. Restore each one who needs restoration. Protect those that are traveling and need safe journeys. We pray for Nikki that she would continue to strengthen in her oxygen count. We pray for Debbie, Lord, that you would heal her cancer and give her doctors the wisdom they need to conquer it. I think of Frank, uh, too, who's struggling on the, 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 the final uh, battle with cancer. And I pray that you just give him great faith and great courage as he faces his demise. I pray for Mark. I don't know what the issues are, but you do. And I pray that even now, while he sits here, he would sense your presence and that you would touch him and move on behalf of his life. I pray for Christy as well. Uh, another who I don't know, but Father, I pray that your hands would be on her life. And I thank you for that. Be with us now in this service, we pray. Help me to speak for you. Help those that listen hear from you and not from me and not get caught up in all the silly things that I say, but instead that they would hear a message from you. Through your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's start that. And I have this thing that I don't know. I probably won't get to. I'm not even sure I put it in here. I have too much to say here. Uh, it's hard when you're trying to do a chapter at a time. I, I'm the kind of guy that likes to do five verses at a time and work my way through a, a chapter slowly, which when we get to chapter 7 and chapter 9, believe me, we won't be going very fast. But these chapters are really a complete story in one, and you have to kind of tell the whole thing. I don't know, has anyone read chapter 3 recently of Daniel chapter 3? So th there's, there's about four verses in there that I'm sort of going to skip. They name every instrument in the Babylonian uh, concert, and I'm not going to read them all but one time. You know, now on the surface, this is a wonderful story. Uh, it's a great Old Testament Bible story that everyone's familiar with, uh, I think probably made famous by the, by the uh, African-American or the African spiritual uh, about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And no, I'm not going to try to sing it. But, but, but underneath this is a terrifying story about the world in which we live today and the world in which believers have lived throughout the centuries. The truth is, there have been many times throughout history where people have been persecuted for their faith. And I know just recently, and I can't remember who said it, I guess it was Pat Hood in, in Nashville or Smyrna that said there are more Christians under persecution right now than have ever been in the history of the world and that more Christians are dying for their faith every year now than have died in the past, including during the days of the Roman Empire. You know, at, some, at, at, at this point in Daniel, when we think it's somewhere, the scholars think it's somewhere between 15 and 20 years into Daniel's captivity. So these guys are established. Daniel has his own office. These, these men, Hananiah, Asheriah, and I forget the last guy's name, 
uh, Abednego. <laughs> That's his Babylonian name. They have offices of their own. They're established in Babylon. And uh, at this time, it's believed that Daniel must have been out of town on business because they would have never pulled these shenanigans that we're going to read about in this chapter had Daniel been around. Uh, so what we're going to see is a move by the local wise men, the, uh, the, the cabinet, if you will, the advisory board for Nebuchadnezzar, the king. And they're going to move to destroy these Jewish transplants who they feel is taking their place. It, it, it's funny because you would think that they'd be a little bit grateful since it was just 15 years ago that these wise men saved their bacon uh, from being destroyed in chapter 2. They almost lost their lives and their families, their houses and everything. But you know, there's one thing you know, the world does not operate on grateful. The world operates on power. It operates on grasping for money. And it operates on the love of prestige, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's how the world operates. So if you think you've done a favor for someone and they're not saved, understand it doesn't even register with many of them, especially in business. In this case, it's in politics, and there is no love in politics as near as I can tell. These Chaldeans were, and I'm, I'm loving them all together. There's actually Medes and there's Persians, and there's Chaldeans, and, and probably some slaves from other tribes that we don't know about. But we're just going to lump them all up into the wise men. And these wise men are jealous of the power of the Jews. So it's almost a Republican-Democrat thing, and I'm not going to tell you which is which because it doesn't apply, but it's like they hate each other. It's really a shame that we're, we're in a situation where it seems that it was out of jealousy, and it's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, whose name I forgot, They'll face the test of a lifetime. They're going to pass this test so completely that 2,600 years later, we're still talking about it. So it's a pretty cool story in that respect. So we're going to begin in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, if you were traveling to Babylon, which, by the way, still exists, uh, Saddam Hussein spent millions and millions of dollars restoring Babylon. They, first, they had to find it in the sand and dig it out and restore it. But if you were to approach Babylon today from the east, you would have to drive through the plains of Dura to get there. Obviously, this statue is not there anymore. Uh, now, they think that back in 596 B.C., there was such unrest in the kingdom. Now, this is a world empire. This is the greatest empire in the world at this point. It's an anti-God. It's, it's a non-Christian, a pagan world empire, if I could be more specific. And they, they felt that because of the unrest in the kingdom, probably over taxation, but I'm making that up, uh, they, they thought something needed to be done to discover any disloyalty towards the king. So they set up this test. Uh, you, 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 you were with me last week when we talked about the vision of Daniel, uh, his interpretation actually in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, who he's the one that had the dream to where he was the head of gold. So he made a statue of that head of gold, and he made it uh, in a way to where anybody who wouldn't bow down to the statue would be killed. Uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar ignored the fact that God was giving him a message about the future. He should have been humbled by that. Nebuchadnezzar was wondering what the future would hold, 
And God in a dream showed him every kingdom that was going to follow him right up until the second coming of Christ. And rather than get interested in the second coming of Christ or the Roman Empire or the Greek Empire, Nebuchadnezzar gets all infatuated with himself. And I, I, I don't know about you, but there's this ad on TV, Martin Harding and Mazzotti. And I think they've taken her off now, but one of the lawyers is a woman. And at the end of the ad, she always goes in, in this, I know she's trying to be empathetic, but it sounds cynical. We're all about you. And, and just something about the way she says that, it just kind of grates me every time she says that. I see they pulled that, they're not running that ad now. But With Nebuchadnezzar, it was all about him. That's the way the world is. That's the way narcissism is. That's the way lostness is. We are all, we are all very selfish people. That's one of the characteristics of the fall. Well, I don't know if Neb dreamed up this idea of an idol. It's been 15 years or whether he was convinced it was a good thing to do. Some people have commented about its dimensions, 60 cubits high and six wide. Cubit is three feet. So this is... Uh, 90 feet high and 18 feet wide. Gold, probably plated, probably not solid. Some people notice the combined measurements are 6'6", six, six, and they, they jump all the way up to the number of a man in Revelation is 666, six, six, and they're saying that this guy that the, 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 this guy is a picture of Antichrist, but Antichrist is going to be 10 times worse. I don't know, people get into those numbers, but... I, I think it's curious, but I, I wouldn't bank on it. I would only bank on what the Bible clearly says, you know. But you know, Antichrist will have a similar, similar loyalty test. Either you'll bow down to the image of the beast in Revelation, and you'll receive the mark of the beast in your head or your hand, which symbolizes your allegiance to him. Or as we understand it, they're going to chop off your head, our head, you know. So you have a, a similar idea, but really the, the, the Greeks and the Romans, they all did the same thing. And the revived Romans, we'll get to that. Verse 2, then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs. Why don't you just say all the politicians? And all the rulers of the provinces. All right, so all over the world they had to come. So if you were under the realm of the Babylonian Empire, you had to make probably a trip that took months to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. The princes and governors and captains and judges and treasurers and counselors and sheriffs and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together into the dedication of the image of Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now I have to think the rest of this is bit of a surprise uh, for the people that are gathered there. Uh, then a herald cried out to you as commanded, O people, nations and languages, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Verse 6, and whosoever falleth not down and worshipeth shall in the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning and fiery furnace. Now, these furnaces uh, are common. They actually have excavated these, these furnaces, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. 
Verse 7, Therefore at that time when the people hear all kinds of music, all the people of the nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. You know, it doesn't matter to most people that aren't Christians or Jews, or in this case, probably it's too soon. There was no such thing as a Muslim. Actually, there was no such thing as a Christian at this point. But it was to be no problem for other lost or idol-worshiping nations to bow down. So this wasn't difficult for them. It says uh, they fell down and worshiped the golden image. That, that didn't bother them. It's better than the fiery furnace, you know. But for Jews then, for Christians and Muslims now, we, they, they we, we, can't, we can't do this. We, we know that it's, it's an offense to our God. The Jews were in Babylon in part because of idol worship. And these, these three Jewish men were faithful. They, they were taken away as children, but now they're, they're in their 30s. And they, they have made a decision. They are not, not going to be offensive to their God. If it cost them their life, it cost them their life. They understood that. And we're the same way. And, you know, I, I don't believe the church is going through the tribulation. I, I believe we'll be removed from the earth before the tribulation period. And I don't think we're going to be faced with this. But if, if we were faced with this, we know. We know that we cannot receive the mark of the beast. We know that we're better off to have our head chopped off and go into heaven than it is to receive the mark of the beast and spend an eternity in hell. Revelation 14.9 reads like this. If any man worship the beast in his image, now I'm up in the tribulation period. Revelation chapter 14. And receive his mark in his forehead or his hand. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And the smoke of their torment will ascend to heaven forever and forever. You know, having your head chopped off is a lot more a lot more preferable than having the smoke of your torment ascending up to God forever and ever. What's interesting to me is Satan hasn't changed his program from the beginning. This We're, we're reading, I'm in Daniel, we're talking 2,600 years ago, and it hasn't changed one bit. You know, the Greeks had a deal that if you didn't bow down to Zeus, which they set up, uh, what, what is his name, Antiochus Epiphanes, set up in the Holy of Holies. Uh, if, if you didn't bow down to Zeus, you'd be killed. And the Romans, they, they set up a rule that if you didn't bow down to Caesar, they fed you alive to the lions. That's how they started killing all those Christians in Rome. Under the Germans, there was no option. There was nothing you could do. If you were a Jew, you just went to the gas chamber and then to the ovens. Under Antichrist, you'll accept the mark of the beast or you'll be executed. It's funny how Satan's program hasn't changed at all. So Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as we know them, knew that they really had no choice. They knew they could not bow down to this image. Live or die, they determined that they would be faithful even if it cost them their life. They would not bow. Verse 8, Wherefore at that time certain Chaldeans came near and accused these Jews, they spake and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man shall he, that shall hear the sound of all thy musical instruments uh, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whosoever falleth now and worship, that he should be cast in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Verse 12 is the key verse. There are certain Jews. Now these are the guys that Nebuchadnezzar set up over them. These are their superiors there are certain jews whom thou hast whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of babylon shadrach meshach and abednego these men O king have not regarded thee they serve not your gods nor worship the golden image which you have set up man they knew how to punch this guy's butt 
And by the way, I've said this before, as near as I can tell, Nebuchadnezzar is not wired correctly. He's really, his elevator does not go to the top floor. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury, these guys have oftentimes helped this king and he, he just snaps into a demonic rage commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is this true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods? It's like, duh. You know, we've been around 15 years. You haven't figured that out yet. Nor worship the golden image which I have set up. Now, if ye be ready at what time you hear all this music, fall down and worship the image which I have made well, well, but if you worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Now, the good news about Nebuchadnezzar is a lot of people feel that he actually finds out who that God is and becomes a believer by the end of it. And I know Chuck Missler is one that believes that, I believe we'll see Chuck Missler when we get to heaven, and Chuck believes he'll meet, he's already met Nebuchadnezzar up there. Verse 16, Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. And that's a rather awkward translation from Aramaic. Uh, the, the Revised Standard Version reads, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer thee in this matter. And really, the way I'd probably recommend translating, there's, there's nothing more we can say. We cannot bow down to this idol. There's nothing to say. There's no answer we can give you because it's impossible for us to bow down to this. You're just going to have to do what you can do. Verse 17, If so be our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king, that's fine. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve your gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Now you know in part, with Israel, it was the worship of idols that got them into the Babylonian captivity in the first place. And you can't even begin to imagine what the hearts of these young men was like. I hope I've got that verb correct. What their hearts were like. You know, past plural. Uh, as they marched away from Israel that last time, 16 years ago, and knew that everybody in their hometown their capital is dead and that their country is utterly destroyed because of idolatry. It's, it's hard to put yourself in their mindset. They're like, uh, they are like Jews that just barely survived the death camps and walked away and moved to other countries in the world. I mean, their lives are forever changed by the experience that they've gone through. Now, these men knew that God could deliver them, but they didn't know if he would. That's many times we go to the hospital and we know that God can guide the surgeon. God can get us through the surgery. God can heal the cancer, but we don't know if he will. All we know is we're going to trust him the best we can. Live or die, they would not bow down to this item. Now, it's at this point I want you to ask yourself, what are you willing to die for? I don't know if you've ever thought about that. You know. Remember for us, this this chapter, although 2,600 years old, is a preview of coming attractions. You know. And we can see the writing on the wall, as they say, in our country now. 
uh, we can see where it's going to get harder and harder to be a believer and to stand for truth. Uh, verse 19, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's elevator is stuck. And then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace seven times more than it was normally heated. Why? I don't know. And he commanded the most mighty men. He took the best soldiers in his army. Well, that's dumb. To bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And these men were bowed in, were bound in their coats and their hosen and their hats and their other garments. Why? Why? You may think, well, he put all that clothing on so it would take longer for him to die. Well, then why heat the oven seven times more than it's normally heated? You should lower the temperature of the oven. If you want him to suffer, lower the temperature. Don't raise the temperature. Raise it up so hot that they'd be killed instantly when they went in there. It was so hot that when they opened the hatch, now you got to picture this thing as a big earthen dome with a, with a door in the bottom that lets air in and a hatch at the top that they can load it with wood uh, or throw what, what they, they would smelt their iron in it and they would, uh, they would glaze their pots or, or fire their pots in it or make their bricks. So they would lower pallets down in from the top. But there's also a chimney in the back. So when they when they walked up with these three men, these these generals, probably not used to doing any work at all, took them and they were going to throw those three men into the furnace. And the fire, when they cracked the top on that superheated thing, the fire just flashed out and killed the generals. There goes three of his best men, and, or six, depending on how they did it. And uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fall down in the fire. They're not even hurt. What, uh, the purpose of the coat, I have no idea, except hopefully to make them suffer more, but uh, it, none of it makes sense. It just shows the insanity of Nebuchadnezzar. He's not thinking clearly. I'm going to put you in the hottest fire I can make. Well, that, that would be good, really. Uh, well, he's not thinking clearly. Now, if you picture this mound of earth with this chimney in the back and this hatch in the top, and, and they, they took the boys up a ramp and threw them down in. Nebuchadnezzar is down at the bottom where they keep feeding the fire with wood. And he could look in, and he was looking to see them drop down in there, see. Uh, therefore, uh, because of the key, by the way, they've unearthed these things. You can actually see pictures of, of these furnaces that existed back in that day. And it has been proven extra biblically outside of the Bible that they have actually used these furnaces for the execution of, of people, uh, not just in this instance. Therefore, because of the king's commandment was urgent and the furnace was exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, he's writing with a quill pen. He could have just said these three men fell down. I don't know why he keeps writing their names down. Uh, fell down, Daniel's writing this, by the way. Fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. And then Nebuchadnezzar, verse 24, the king was astonished, rose up in hate. He was sitting down there in his easy chair wanting to see these guys screaming and writhing in pain. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, didn't we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered, true, O king. He answered, lo, I see four men loose. Walking in the midst of the fire, they have no hurt. I see four men loose. Notice that word. Walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt. 
And the form of the fourth is likened to the Son of God. There are three miracles here. First of all, the men are loose. The only thing that burned off were their bindings. Some people think that if they come into the presence of God, God will destroy them. But the only thing God will destroy when you come in His presence are the things that bind you and hold you down. You don't need to be afraid to come to God. These men are loose. That's a miracle. Only their bindings were burned away. Walking unhurt in the fire instead of in agony, they looked like they're doing quite well in there. And the third miracle is they had a visitor. It looked like a God. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't at a point where he was ready to talk about the Son of God. He's talking about a, a, an offspring of the gods, uh, if you will, a pagan viewpoint. Then Nebuchadnezzar came to the mouth of the burning fire furnace, and that's where the cold air is being drawn in, and, and spoke, and he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God. <laughs> Old Neb's getting a little religion here. So. Come forth and come hither. I would have been tempted to say, no, king, come on in. <laughs> come on in. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth out of the midst of the fire, and the princes and governors and captains and kings and counselors being gathered together saw these men, upon whom the bodies, the fire had no power, nor was a hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of the fire had passed on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake in his typical bipolar way, and he said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him and hath changed the king's word. You weren't allowed to change the king's word, but God could, see. And yielded their bodies that they might not serve or worship any god except their own god. Now, you know, this made an impression on Neb. He was almost too mentally ill for it to do any good, but it made an impression on him. Uh, that's going a long way to make a testimony. Isn't it? I mean to tell you, that's that's a tough witness. A lot of times I have trouble getting a conversation started. I didn't have to jump into a fiery furnace. So. Therefore, this is the king. I made a decree, verse 29, that every people, nation, and language would speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made a dunghill. That doesn't convince people to be saved. It's sort of like, King, whoa, just tell them that there's a God in heaven that can save you from the fire. You don't need to threaten to cut them in pieces and destroy their families. But that's the way the king thinks. You know, you do what I say, or I'll cut you in pieces. Uh, because there's no other God that can deliver after this sort. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is the exact opposite of what the counselors have wanted. The, the, the cabinet was kind of hoping that they'd be uh, done away with, and instead of being done away with, they ended up with a promotion in the province of Babylon. You know, what are you willing to die for? We all think that if someone comes into our home with clear intentions to do us home, we harm, we, we all tend to think that, well, we're going we're gonna to get in front. We'll put ourselves between the intruder in our families. We'd like to think that we would stand in their way and try to stop them if we could. We'd like to think that if someone comes into this church and demands that we deny Christ or die, that we would be willing to die. We'd like to think that we'd do that. I, I don't know how many of us would. I don't know if I would. Would I be willing to attack the shooter in an attempt to save others? I don't know. Never been tested like that. What about when others are in danger? 
You know, the Bible tells us that when we're in a position and someone else is in danger, we're supposed to step in. Do we do that? You know, we all tend to live our own lives and we try not to think about things like that. But if you lived 100 years ago, would you have enlisted in the Civil War? Would you have gotten on that train to go down to Gettysburg or, or Bull Run or Manassas? Would you have done it if you were of the right age? You know? The North clearly got involved in the war, not only to save the Union, but the soldiers that got involved in the North, they wanted to free the slaves. That's clearly why they did it. Would you do it? And if you would, if you would, I don't know if I would have. I'd have probably been, if I was in draft age, I probably would have been drafted. You know, we talk a lot about soldiers giving their lives on the battlefield. Uh, if my truck would have hit a, hit a mine in Vietnam, they would have said he was a hero, and I can assure you that's not true. And they would have said he, he sacrificed his life, and that's not true either. My government would have sacrificed my life. I didn't have a choice in the matter. I didn't think, oh, hey, I'll go over to Vietnam and, and get killed. Uh, so probably those draftees in the Civil War, they, they were just stuck. They just happened to be wrong gender and the wrong age. You know. But there were hundreds, thousands of others that took up arms for the purpose specifically to free the slaves. Their lives count for something. And they did sacrifice their lives willingly. They did it. You know, I wasn't one of them. When Paul Pot was doing his thing, I, I, and I was back home from Vietnam, I never thought about enlisting in an army to go stop Paul Pot in Cambodia. I hear about what's happening in the Sudan right now. But I don't even consider getting involved. And why is that? I have a niece that's involved in the international slave trade. I should say that another way. I have a niece that's involved in stopping the international slave trade, particularly the trafficking of young women. I herald her courage. Why am I not involved? What am I willing to die for? That's a question. What am I willing to die for? Because what you're willing to die for is what you will live for. In a way, what we are living for now is what we're willing to die for. Because we're all dying. So we take what time we have and we do what we think is important to us. Our real vote is with our lives. When the issues are most vital to us, that's the question. What matters to you? What are the most important things in your life? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah got stuck on his name. They were administrators. They were office workers. But that's not why they were alive. They lived for Yahweh. They lived for the God of the Old Testament. They lived for Jesus. They just didn't know his name. And they knew that eternity was very long. And the death under Nebuchadnezzar was very short. And they'd rather choose an eternity with God than they would an eternity in hell. Right now, today, we know missionaries. We're supporting missionaries who put their lives on the line to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. At any point, we could hear from them that one of them has been killed. Some of them, not our missionaries, hopefully, but missionaries today will die. Today, while we're talking. 
we may not even hear about it on the news. And then you ask the question, was it worth it? You know, I had a, I had a professor in seminary. I'll think of his name as I get along there, Harold Bickers. I think it was Harold. I called him Dr. Bickers, so I think it was Harold Bickers. He went to, he went to Malawi as a missionary. Malawi is in the south quarter on the east coast of Africa up in the mountains, and, and before he went on his mission station, one of the older missionaries stopped at a missionary graveyard, and they, they looked at all the gravestones that were there. Probably most of the Christians in Africa at that time were buried in that graveyard. And the guy said, Harold, there are more Christians buried in this graveyard than there are missionaries in Malawi right now. And that'll give you an idea of the cost. When we take time to think about it, what really matters to us and what really matters to God? In this life, every one of us will die. Some of us will be young. Some of us will be older. Some people will die with lots of money and some people with little money. But one way or the other, the grim reaper comes for us all. And when it's said and done, will we have lived our lives for things that really matter? That's the question. Have we made our lives matter to God? Now, I don't know what matters the most to you, but as I thought about these questions many years ago, I thought, I thought to myself, you know, there's only one way to get to heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. I am the way, not a way. I am the truth, not a truth. I am the life, the source of life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And I thought about a lot of things I could have done with my life. I could have worked on missionary housing, I could have worked on engineering systems to help help countries, I could have gotten involved in all kinds of other things, but the most important thing it seemed to me, and actually Neil, I forgot his last name, a missionary I met, Neil, and I forgot his wife's name, said to me, he said, you know, he, he was over in Africa, and, and he was doing engineering, and his wife was a nurse, Neil and Jenny Whitcomb, Whit, Whit, Mom Whitcomb, Something like that. Yeah, your memory's as good as mine. Neil and Jeannie, anyway. And when they did surgery, they pulled Neil out of his ditch-digging, pipe-running, plumbing operation to go in and run a hand pump. And he ran a hand pump that evacuated blood from wounds because they didn't have electricity. So it was a manual pump that he had to run while they did surgery. He said to me, you know, he said, you can do this kind of work. But he said, the most important thing you can do is Tell someone about Jesus. Because everybody's going to die. But not everybody's going to go to heaven. So I kind of dedicated my life to that. We can't be fuzzy about this. There's only one way. Jesus died for our sins. If we put our faith in Him and trust that His death for us makes it possible that we can go to heaven, we're saved. If not, we're lost. It's as simple as that. If we're trying to work our way or do good or go to enough church services... We're lost. We're not saved. We either trust Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Can't be fuzzy about it. That way must be guarded. It must be defended at all costs. Now, the new, the new talk around town is the Second Amendment. First Amendment, Congress shall make no law regarding the establishment of a religion or the free exercise thereof. And then it goes on and talks about free speech. That's the one that matters. That's the one that matters. You know, a lot of, lot of talk now about the Second Amendment. 
which is the right to keep and bear arms, which many see as a stepping stone. Crush the second and you can go after the first. I don't know. I don't know if that's an issue worth dying for or not. I really don't. I can't answer that for you. I can't answer that for myself. I just know that the way of salvation must be guarded. That the ability to communicate the gospel is the most important right we have in this country. It's the only hope that anyone has of finding salvation. It's the only hope. Today we have this thing they're calling the cancel culture. I don't know if that's a good term or not. It's catchy. You know, and first the cancel culture went against the statues of Confederate generals. We can all see that. We can understand why. We can see the offense it would be to see a statue of Robert E. Lee. As, as, a, as a Yankee who lost family in the Civil War, I could take offense at that. I'm not even black. I can understand that. Then they started going after the Founding Fathers because they went along with the they went along with their day, and many of them owned slaves. I can see the offense. I understand it. But after you erase so much history, what protects us from the future? Now they're going after Abraham Lincoln. I find that amazing. Lately, it's been books. Now, I am no fan of Dr. Seuss. I thought those books were the stupidest things I've ever written. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I just hate poetry in general. I don't know. Going after Dr. Seuss. But I think to myself as I listen to this chaos about Dr. Seuss, if they're going after Dr. Seuss now, how long before they come after the Bible? I mean, if you think Dr. Seuss has hate speech in it, don't read the Bible, because you'll find some hate speech in there by their definition. How long before even a witness to truth? You know, it's against, well, it was, I don't know if it is now, but in France it was against the law to walk around the streets and hand out tracts and witness. How long before that's true in the United States of America? Is the truth of the gospel worth dying for? That's the question. It was to Jesus. Is it to us? You know, I think it's important when we look at these, these boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who decided what their lives were worth, their lives would not bow down to some pagan idol. I think we need to ask ourselves the question, what are our lives worth? So I don't know the details about this, and I really wouldn't want you sharing it without some research. I had intended to do some research this morning, but I got sidetracked in the office this morning. Supposedly in Texas, this is from your husband. I saw this forwarded from, uh, I can't think of your husband's name, Rod. I saw this forwarded from Rod. In Texas, State Representative Terry Meza, M-E-Z-A, Democrat from Irving, Texas, has introduced a House Bill 196. I, and I, that's a state representative, House of Representatives, Texas. Her bill would repeal the state's castle doctrine. This doctrine allows a homeowner to use deadly force against an armed intruder who breaks into his house. We don't call it that in Vermont, but we have that right. If an armed intruder breaks into our house, 
we have the right to use deadly force in order to protect our family. Now she goes on and she's explaining this, this bill. I'm not saying that stealing is okay, she explains. All I'm saying is that it doesn't warrant a death penalty. Well, I agree with that. Uh, it doesn't warrant a death penalty. But the thieves are thinking that my property is worth dying for. Thieves only carry, this is her explanation. Now, I'm reading this because I want you to hear the mindset of people that, that I don't agree with. You might agree with her, I don't know. I just want you to hear her mindset. Thieves only carry weapons for self-protection and to provide the householder an incentive to cooperate. Well, that's true. That is true. The reason he points that gun into your face is to provide you an incentive to cooperate. They just want to get their loot and get away. When the resident tries to resist, that's when people get hurt. If only one side is armed, fewer people will be killed. Well, I told Linda driving in, what about the guy that's going breaking into houses in Vermont and taking a ball bat to old people just to steal their oxycodone? I don't know. Is that true? I don't know. Meza was quick to reassure her that the bill would not totally prevent homeowners from defending themselves. Under the new law, <clears throat> excuse me, the homeowner's obligation is to flee from the home at the first sign of intrusion. So if he comes in the front door, you go out the back door. Now, if fleeing is not possible, the homeowner must cooperate with the intruder. But if violence breaks out, it is the homeowner's responsibility to make sure no one gets hurt. You actually wrote this down, lady? The best way to achieve this is to use the minimum non-lethal force possible because intruders will be able to sue for any injuries they receive at the hands of the homeowner. Not if they're dead. In most instances, the thief needs the money more than the homeowner does, she reasons. The homeowner's insurance will reimburse his losses, and on a balance, she said, the transfer of property is likely to lead to a more equitable distribution of wealth. And if my bill can help make this transfer a peaceful one, so much the better. I've often thought that when things get really bad in Vermont, I'll move to Texas, but that's making it. <laughs> I'm thinking Mars would be the only place we'll be safe. If, if, if there, if, I hope this is a joke. And I, I wish I'd have researched it better. But if this is anywhere near the mindset of some of these anti-constitution, anti-gun, anti-people, anti uh, that scares me to death to think that. that, that this, this is the mindset of Nebuchadnezzar. That's why I wanted to read it. I mean, he, he was completely out there in la-la land. I want you to know about this God. And if you don't know about this God, I'll hack you to pieces. Thinking, Man, you need to find out about this God because God doesn't go around hacking people to pieces. Why would you? Father, thank you for this time together and this opportunity to share your scriptures with your people. Thank you for those that have made the trip to get here and those that are on Zoom with us. Thank you for the, the opportunity you've given me to speak on your behalf. 
Father, my hope is that not one person within the sound of my voice will pass up the opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior and that they will have made a personal, individual commitment to follow Him as their King, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.